Who says tech can't be human? Structure a business, do all the right things you're supposed to do with business, legal and insurance, operate underneath that. Those are kind of the levers you have to pull from a protection standpoint when you are a service provider. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. When it comes to IT and security, we can all agree on two things. Complexity is increasing and the manual asset inventory approach no longer cuts it. It's time to adapt. And that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius correlates asset data from existing cybersecurity and SaaS solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate actions, giving you the confidence to control complexity. Sign up for a free walkthrough of the platform at exonius.com forward slash get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash get dash a dash tour. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again with one of our fellow security tinkerers, someone that's doing amazing work and changing an entire industry and a billion, billion, billion dollar industry. Our guest today is Brian Hoagley. Brian is the CEO of Side Channel. And you know what, Brian? It's such an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Feels like we should have had you on at least three times, but the day <laughs> is here. Welcome to the podcast. No worries, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on and talking with all of you. Absolutely. One of the things that we talk about quite often is how organizations, they need leadership in many ways. You have generally the CEO or the founder that's leading the organization, but you also need security leadership. But when people think cybersecurity, they first think tech. They always think tech first. They jump right into technology. Is there something I can buy that's going to help keep me safe? What has been your philosophy throughout the years when it comes to leadership versus technology? So it's the old adage, people process technology. Tech is just one of them. People's just one of them processes one. You can't just do all in one bucket and expect it's going to work. I've been of the mindset that when you're building security programs, whether it's an enterprise or a small business or a startup, you need to start with a strategy. And strategy is not technology. It's figuring out what do you want to look like when you grow up, really, in kind of a sense. So looking at your current organization and then figuring out what you want to look like, building that roadmap to get there. I can do all of that without a single piece of technology. That seems to be the biggest thing. It seems to be missed. Everyone jumps to the shiny object. What can I buy to go solve this problem? And you never stop and question, was that the first problem I was supposed to solve? That is a really good point. One that hits very close home to me because I see this in my own work. I see this for other people's work. When they go about building a strategy, they make one significant step forward and then they go immediately into planning mode. They try to buy the technology because it fits part of the strategy, but they haven't necessarily flushed out what the strategy is. How do you go about doing that with such distracted minds, especially in today's world? Well, that's where the leader of the organization or that part of the organization comes in. Like That's their job. As a CISO or Chief Information Security Officer at an organization, if that's your role or your CIO charged with security or a CTO charged with security, your job is to own and shepherd the strategy. And that requires you to manage your team to move along 
the cadence of what that strategy is. So, hey, if we're on day one planning, let's stop thinking about solutioning, which is not until day 30 or day 60 or whenever it is. So leadership inside of, I think, really, and this applies outside of tech. You can build a strategy for a business. You can build a strategy for invading a country. Leaders need a strategy and then they need to execute to it. You can't execute on something and then build the strategic path forward. So the leadership role is really the one of better managing your resources. Your people are your resources to move along the strategy that you have documented and laid out and gotten buy-in from. I'd really question an organization who does jump the gun and say, did you actually socialize what your strategic direction and your documents were? Why is everybody moving off of that agreed upon cadence? How did we get there? And you can usually point back to the leader of that organization not having really a firm grasp or management of their team and of their resources. You know, they got all these kind of rogue movements going on. So it just always comes back to the leader of the org, I think. I think we also get into the situation sometimes where luck occurs, where a leader has led an organization and they might have just had a great team, but not necessarily the most robust strategy. What is an example of a strategy? I'm asking for a friend, really for myself, but give us an example of what a strategy would sound like and what are some of the tenets of making sure that you've done the work of creating a strategy. So let's put it inside of the framework of information security, just to keep it easy. And that's why we're all here talking. First, what is the identity and the purpose of the business? That's your number one North Star from a security perspective. Now you know what the business does. Why are you even there? You've got an assessment of your current capabilities, your current resources, your assets. What do you have right now? Think of it like an inventory of who you are as an organization on being able to actually meet those business objectives. And now you have to look at yourself through an assessment and say, okay, can we fully support that business objective, the mission of the business, the business as a whole with what we are doing today? The answer is yes, keep doing what you're doing. You probably are executing to a pretty good strategy. But the answer is no, and you're saying, we have some deficiencies, we have some gaps, we have some areas that we've identified that we are not strong in, and it is not fully supporting what the business needs to do to be successful. So what do we need to look like? Now we're establishing our target state. And that target state is the, what do I want to look like? What is in between becomes your roadmap between your current state and your target state. And if anybody follows along and knows I'm a huge NIST fanboy, big fan <laughs> of NIST cybersecurity framework, you'll know that this comes out of basically the opening two chapters of NIST and RMF, all of that, because that's what risk management is the first steps are building out the strategy before you get to closing gaps. So you need to support the business, but you need to support the business's actual mission. You need to be able to identify your current state to your target state and then build that roadmap. The strategy is to me is a document is what do we want to go do? It's managing that. You can manage that as a document. You can manage it as an idea. It's going to be a pretty heavy idea to be able to just have and not written down. So you should probably write it down. So it's socialized. Yep. Everybody's then aware of it. When people talk about strategic direction, that is what I think about. What I think a lot of people misuse the term is they throw strategy around as a grander concept and don't actually think about the elements that need to go into actually building one. It's just, oh, this needs to be strategic. And so that's a really lofty idea. <laughs> like, no, you need to align to a definition that supports a business and outcomes. And that's what's strategic. The idea is not strategic. It's actually something that needs to be done and worked with. It's a process. 
the world you're painting is the world I want to live in, but that doesn't seem to be reality in most situations. You have these grand initiatives and all of a sudden people are throwing tasks around and things are going all over the place. And it's almost like sometimes people find themselves trying to pull the reins back. But sometimes when you let the genie out of the bottle, it's really hard to correct course. What are some of the knowledge or advice that you would have for someone that's trying to bring everybody back down to ground zero before they go into anything and build up all this tech debt, go the wrong way, not have the right strategy? How do you bring it back once the genie's out of the bottle? Once the strategy's out and everyone sees it, like, okay, that's the direction we're going. Let's say you have an initiative, but there isn't a strategy, but everyone just starts doing work. People are grabbing for land grabbing, Mm -hmm. trying, oh, this piece is going to be mine. I'm going to do this. You go do that. I'm going to send you to do these tasks. But there's no real solid plan or strategy in place. How do you bring everybody back to ground zero so then you can start with a strategy before people just start marching orders? It's funny. So a lot of our business is as a fractional or virtual CISO in organizations. And we usually walk into a client because they realize that they don't have somebody at the helm who can shepherd a strategic vision or build out a program. So we regularly walk into this. And I'll tell you, what we usually do is we let it run for a little while, see how teams are operating. There's already an initiative going in place, some type of project, resourcing, buy-in already happening. Don't stop that train. While that's happening, and you're trying to manage that with expertise, but not throw it off the rails, you are actually having to build that strategy with that initiative in mind. And you've got a couple choices. You could stop the initiative. You lose potentially all the goodwill that was built up to influence why that went into place. Maybe they're working on priority number six when after your risk assessment or your own assessment, it should have been priority one or vice versa, right? They're working on something that should have been lower level. I don't like to derail that. You've got people bought in an idea. Let them run with it. Let them fix it. Come back, though, and adjust and merge it into where it should have been or just Maybe reprioritize, be like, oh, this is now our number one priority, even though it tells us it should have been sixth. Fine. Let this one go. After this is done or in parallel, we'll now work on the new natural number two, then the number three and the number four. So I don't ever like to just throw it all out. Let's just use that, especially in security when it's so hard to be able to get buy-in or influence an organization to go do not just the right thing, but anything sometimes. I would rather not touch that. But at some point, yeah, you do have to rein it in. You have to align it to your prioritization and your strategic order. And I think a lot of that is just now you're influencing that group to say, listen, I know you want to do this in six months, but we really need to do these five things over here before you, or we should have. What if we pause on yours at a reasonable milestone? We pick up the initiatives in the natural order that we should have done. And then we'll come back to this knowing that We're halfway through the project or three quarters of the project. You just got to make those kind of decisions. Maybe you just let it finish. Maybe you let it finish with a good enough state and you come back when you do get to number six in your priority list and you finish it so that it's at the perfect best state. You kind of have to make those decisions. I don't think without knowing them, I could say, yeah, you're always going to do it this way or that way. You just adjust fire. So let's talk a bit about organizations. I've spent most of my career working at large organizations, public organizations, and I haven't really spent much time working with the small to mid-market, but I know that you have. What are some of the differences when it comes to building a security program, having some success when it comes to the security topic for those types of organizations? 
Yeah, so it's mid-market is a weird definition because it's not very well defined and everybody has a different one. We have clients that are as big as $4 billion a year in revenue and publicly traded. We have clients that are as small as $10 million VC-backed startups and everything in between. For us, SMB is not like mom and pop shops. These are significant brands, significant logos, doing pretty extensive work in biotech, retail, commercial manufacturing, defense. The thing that I love the most about this space is when mid-market and startups pick up their head and make the conscious decision to say, we want to address security. Those are the people that we're talking to. They're talking to us and we're like, you actually mean it. And you're going to make adjustments in your security posture in timelines that I can measure in weeks and months, not in quarters and years. And as a security professional, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction seeing that happen because the mid-market cannot afford to spend their dollars wrong. So when they decide to do something around security, they generally mean it and they mean that they actually want to see it through. And there's a lot less politics and there's a lot less influence needed because they've kind of already come to the decision that they should be doing this and they should make the right decision. Now, that is not every SMB. That is not every mid-market company or small enterprises. I'll say those are not our clients. I don't work with organizations that don't believe cybersecurity is a risk. I never try to sell cybersecurity. You either believe it's a risk or you don't. So those SMBs that actually pick it up and want to do it, they're the ones that are actually making a good conscious effort. They're drastically changing their cyber posture because they actually support it from the limited resources that they have available. But the SMB is a different space as far as what they need and how they need. You can't bring enterprise solutions and enterprise priced solutions into them. They can't buy like that. They have to think more on a monthly payment, but annualized contract approach. They can't just plop down six, seven figures for a solution in an annual purchase. So you've got to find solutions that are better tailored towards what their budgets are, even what their cadence is. These are Organizations we walk into, they don't have security teams at all. Sometimes they have very small IT teams. They're predominantly on the business end and business heavy on their resources. So you've got to now bring in more managed services and managed solutions. You've got to bring in solutions that can make the best of what they already own. Maybe they've already bought Microsoft E3, E5 licensing from a business perspective, and you're spending more time or focus on enabling capabilities that they've purchased that they didn't know about rather than buying a net new solution that does the same thing. So the SMB has a different buying, they have a different thinking than the enterprise, and they definitely have a different resource allocation. Let's say I'm a brand new fractional CISO and I have my first client. I'm so excited. I travel to wherever the HQ is. I walk into this boardroom meeting or maybe I'm meeting with some of the other leadership and I begin my engagement. What are the top three questions I'm going to ask of this organization to set me on the right path? Usually the first one is, why am I here? Or who is the reason that I'm here? If I'm talking to the board, hopefully that's the reason I'm talking to them. Leadership, the board, whatever, maybe the private equity firm behind that startup has put the need forward. But what is the reason that security is being actually addressed? And, and I can usually ask, this is kind of like sub question one, but like you either have a regulation that you need to meet, you have board or C-suite oversight that says, hey, we should be doing the right thing. You have customers demanding that you prove your security posture. 
or your post-post breach. Unfortunately, had the bad day, the digital janitors came in, cleaned up everything, and now you're sitting there going, I don't ever want to go through that again, and insurance won't cover the second go-round, so how do I make a better program and build a, a way for me to what I should have been doing in the first place? So usually you kind of answer those questions, and that's why the CISO, the VCISO's in there. From there, I'm really asking top down. I like, I'm a simple guy when it comes to security. I like frameworks, not just NIST. I like the CIS controls. So you start with, do you know everything you own? Do you have a, any type of an inventory of your environment? Because I can't defend what I don't know exists. Do you know what you have first? Do you know who your vendors are? Do you know who your people are? Do you know who has the keys to your kingdom? Getting a good understanding of the lay of the land. And then from there, it's what tying back to that first thing, why are you building a security program? What are your objectives and how fast do you need to get there? So if it's, hey, it's regulation and we should have been compliant with that regulation a year ago. Okay, we know what your speed is. If it's this customer could mean $5 million a year in ARR for us, if we can prove our security posture, okay, I know what speed we have to build out and educate and instill a culture in this organization so that customer can see you're doing the right thing. That's what's dictating. What do I have? How fast do I need to move and build this program? And what does the resourcing look like to make that happen? You don't jump into, okay, well, what's the budget? No, it's, I like to get the, what do I have to actually defend and build to? How fast do I have to actually make that happen? That then informs and sets up the much better discussion around, all right, well, this is realistically what you should be considered purchasing because if you increase the complexity or you increase the speed, the price goes up. So you choose. You can't get it. Was it good, fast, and cheap? You pick two. <laughs> it's one of those conversations with the board or the C-suite. And I'll tell you, from a kind of a straightforward methodology of going in, assessing, building out a program, that works really, really well. Because it's simple. People understand why they're doing it. They understand what levers they have to pull. And they understand what they have to accept if they're not willing to pull on those levers. For more than two decades, NetSpy has helped companies discover and remediate critical security issues through its platform-driven, human-delivered security testing. NetSpy is much more than a pen testing company, bringing you the most comprehensive suite of offensive security solutions. Visit netspy.com forward slash HBM to learn more. That's netspi.com forward slash HBM. Thank you, Nespy, for sponsoring this episode. I love the fact that Chris asked from the perspective of a new fractional CISO. I follow your YouTube channel. I love the videos that you put out. If anyone's listening that wants to be a fractional CISO, I feel like your YouTube channel has really all the tips for being that person, but also going about it with success. I love the frameworks videos that you've created, especially because it kind of breaks out the NIST framework into digestible chapters. When you look at some of the content that you create and also the lessons that you've learned, it sounds like you have a lot of confidence when it comes to coming into an organization and getting them on track. What have been some of the biggest realizations along your journey from the good, but also the bad? So obviously when I started Side Channel, I was delivery. I was the one delivering to clients. And the bad and the thing that I learned quickly is people don't scale. So getting from that, from April 2019 to where we are today, where we have over 20 former enterprise CISOs working for us, delivering into a very large and growing client base, it's how do you tech enable people to be able to go do their jobs effectively? How do you retain them so that they 
continue to help you build because when you lose a CISO, you now you got to figure out how to support your clients more. That's on me building an entire company that supports and has fractional CISOs into clients. But to be a successful, I think to be a successful VC, so a fractional CISO in clients, I think first and foremost, you can't just be a good expert CISO. We've had people work for us who are phenomenal chief information security officers. And but the thing that they lack, and I think the number one skill is, can you be a great consultant? Because you are still coming in as a third party. You're not an employee of that organization. You still have to be very, very good at listening in a consultative way to figure out what is it that this client really is looking for? Because not as an employee, I'm not doing the rounds like I would as an employee. I'm trying to gain, again, as a third party provider to them that in this role, I can accomplish what's needed, but I need to better understand what your real pain points are. So there's still this little weird dance you always do, and you need to figure out how to get over that. And that people who have very good consultative capabilities or have been former consultants, they do really well in that role. That doesn't discount, though, the depth of expertise you need. We have seen and have removed or replaced VCSOs, other smaller shops where it's a 26-year-old with a playbook. It's a former IT director that just decided they wanted to be a consultant and now they're a quote-unquote VCSO. I think experience matters significantly when you start stepping into this role. And you got to ask yourself, do you want to be able to sit down with a board member and talk about security and have 20 plus years of experience? Or do you want to be a 20-something year old? Who are they going to take and understand and really listen to? So that experience really, I think, matters. To be a successful CISO, bringing that experience to play. I'm not saying you can't be successful if you don't. I just think it's a lot harder. One of the areas that usually always gets me is the CFO brings us in or the CTO brings us in or the CEO. And there's a CIO there and they maybe wanted to own security as well. But now you're there. And now it's like this classic battle. But instead of being a full-time employee and being that CISO and they're a CIO, you are contractor, a dreaded contractor, consultant, right. or third-party provider. So now you have this different hurdle to get over. Those are very difficult, but they're made easier because you always remember who is your client. Like, who signed my statement of work? Why am I here? Oh, I'm here because of the board. I'm here because of the private equity firm. So you just need to obviously make friends, influence, but you need to also remember and not get discouraged that you are there because of someone else. And chances are they probably brought you in because they saw the lack of experience and capabilities in that person that you're potentially having some issues with. So those are definitely areas that none of us enjoy, but working in a business environment, you're going to run into. So you need to navigate through it. Definitely have to have the experience to get the job. Seems like, sure, it might be a great learning experience, but you're not going to provide the value that people are paying. When you look at the role of a CISO, if you look at the traditional CISO, obviously probably stretched thin because you're leading a lot of different efforts. You're leading a lot of different individuals. But when you look at being a fractional CISO, sometimes those VCSOs are part-time VCSOs, and then they have a full-time CISO job. And then sometimes you have those fractional VCSOs that are just supporting a bunch of different clients. One of the things that we're talking a lot about today is the liability of being a CISO. What are some of the things, some of the traps, some of the things that people need to think about if they're going to step into a fractional CISO role and not really give all of their attention to one individual organization? 
Yeah, so coming from somebody who was a full-time CISO and started side channel basically as a side hustle, and my available capacity allowed me to work with a number of small nonprofits and small organizations where it made sense, and I never impacted my day job. Having now run this company of fractional CISOs for four years, going on five years, I wouldn't recommend doing that for anyone ever again. Because if you take your eyeball off your day job and what's supposed to happen there, now you're not focusing on what you're there for and you're trying to do this thing on the side, you're going to slip. And God forbid it, you slip in the day job and you're going to have a big problem. So one, I don't think that works anymore. And I can tell you that from experience and I can tell you that from running a team multiple teams now of VCSOs. So I think you have to decide, am I in or am I out? Do I want to be a full-time CISO? Great. Stick to that job. Do that. Focus on that. Do I want to go fractional and be a consultant? Great. Go do that. Don't hold down a full-time job. If you are going to be, actually, this job is a full-time job. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> if you do go the fractional route and you're VCSO, you need to look at what you have available to you to protect yourself and be able to focus. So one thing that we do is we do a heck of a lot of capacity planning. We're very structured on it. None of our guys and girls, they have more than four clients. They don't go over a certain amount of hours because context switching above three or four clients becomes incredibly difficult. So scheduling, structuring, having a really great defined project management discipline, we do all of that. And that's what makes the ability for one person to service three to four clients very effectively and not have the ball dropped on anyone. I think Chris took your maybe like post Uber Joe mm -hmm. Sullivan trial ask as a CISO, as a full-time employee, you've got completely different things you need to be looking at as an individual, as an employee and the protections you get for that company. I think teammate VC just came out with a really great little book outlining a number of different things that you should be looking at. But basically, are you included in the insurance EONO coverage of the company? Okay, that's number one. Do you have the authority to make certain decisions without the board or the CEO's approval? Who has the ability and the right to be able to use the B word, right? Breach in an organization. Can you work with outside counsel? Do you have your own personal insurance and an umbrella policy? These are things that you as an employee need to worry about because you are an employee and potentially an officer of the company. As a third-party provider, your protections are inside of your master services agreement or your terms and conditions with that client. And you need to outline those very clearly. You need to be able to dictate what exactly are you doing? What are your responsibilities? Are you advising? And all actions that are taken are those done by the client. So you're making recommendations. They're making acceptance and making those acceptance of your recommendations into their environment. So like, you have to define those in your MSAs, in your statements of work. You need to define what your limitations of liability are with that client. You need to be able to determine, say, what your exceptions are. So having a really clear and structured MSA for being a VCSO, that is paramount. Work with a legal team. Don't just download a template off the internet. Just hope it's good. I worked with a great lawyer who built me an entire legal document management system, basically told me in my MSAs what sections I was allowed to change, what sections I was not allowed to change whatsoever and what change sections I could actually just throw out were like giveaways. And then from a corporate standpoint, one, never 1099 to a client directly. Set yourself up as an LLC. Set yourself up as some type of corporation. Limit your liability. Protect your personal assets because you don't want those to become after if you are just doing a 1099 agreement or something with a company as an individual. And then as part of that corporate structure, definitely put in place an insurance policy and a set of insurance policies. You want to have your own DNO insurance as an organization. You want to have your own 
professional lines and management lines and E&O insurance for errors and omissions, potentially even your own cyber insurance in case something happens on your systems that could affect their systems. So structure a business, do all the right things you're supposed to do with business, legal and insurance, and operate underneath that. Those are the levers you have to pull from a protection standpoint when you are a service provider. Love it. There's a lot of people that listen to this show that want to be chief information security officer, whether it's a fractional or for an organization. Now that you've seen both sides of the house and now even leading fractional CISOs, what would be that piece of advice that you have for our audience that is interested in becoming a CISO, but want to stay fresh? Because we do hear that it's one of the most demanding jobs in security. I would joke and say, don't do it. Pick a different profession. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you're like me and you're in this profession, you're probably wired the same way I am, that you enjoy solving problems. You have a defensive kind of mindset to how you want to work. You want to protect things. I think a lot of people are in cyber because they want to protect things. I think you want to latch onto that and follow that as your passion and your ability to navigate through the hard times. That's Probably what's ever kept me going. You're in the middle of an incident. You're working through something crazy. You've got executives wondering what the status of stuff is. You've got all this comms that has to go out to external parties, whether it's regulators or outside counsel or whatever. You're trying to coordinate your own team's success. And you're sitting there going, seriously, is this worth it? Like, why am I going through this stress? And then you're like, wait, I did this for a reason. Why am I doing this? Because I want to protect the organization I'm working for. Or if you're in the DOD, it's the same thing. It's very mission focused. So look, just take care of yourself. I think exercising is huge. Eat right, sleep right. You got to take care of your mental health. You got to take care of your physical health. You got to take care of your spiritual health. You got to do all that or you're never going to be good professionally. So you can't negate those three areas and expect you're going to be some amazing CISO in the long run. You can get by a little while, but after a while, it's going to take its toll. So taking care of yourself, I think, is paramount. And then obviously educating yourself and staying up to date with what's going on. Five years ago, I could be talking about different priorities than I am today because the landscape shifts. And it's just about trying to stay on top of what's going on. You don't have to be a master of any of it, but you need to understand what are the new threats, what are new risks, what are the new solutions, what are the new ways to address. Again, you don't have to go deep, but just know that they exist and know where to pull on it. And then make sure you're not going it alone. I don't know any successful single solopreneur VC so that's out there long-term that has done it without building some type of support system around them. You have to rely on partners. You could have come up through the ranks as a pen tester. You could have come up through the ranks as an incident responder, and now you went on to lead the SOC, and now you're the CISO. But do you know anything about policy? Do you know anything about GRC and what you're going to rely on over there? Do you know anything about vulnerability management? No. So you have to build those teams if you can't have them as part of your organization as a delivery to your clients directly, you need to have partners that can. You need to rely on them and then you need them to rely on you. So we call it an ecosystem inside channel. We stay in our lane. We do what we do really well. And we partner with companies and organizations that do what they do really well. And everyone gets to rely on each other because we know we are specialists in our respective crafts. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. You could probably have a whole episode on <laughs> this question, but I think that's a good start. Take care of yourself first. And then I think from the rest of it, it'll fall in line. 
Great advice. And thanks for giving us a straight masterclass on this. Honestly, <laughs> I can't tell if you just made a bunch of competitors saying, oh, I can do this now or have a bunch of people say, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore because I do not have all my ducks in a row. But at any rate, it's definitely a wealth of information for anyone to digest. For anyone out there that wants to check out what Brian's got going on or connect with him. We're going to drop all of his information down into the show notes, wherever you're listening to this. And with that, we will see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.